0: The show you need to get what you desire by avoiding the mistakes made by others before you. Learn the stories and journeys of what success looks like to find the freedom you deserve while thriving with your best life. And now I present to you the one, the only Rapid Results with Andrew Wise. Welcome back to another episode of Rapid Results with Andrew Weiss. I am more than excited, super pumped to be bringing on Jake Gallon to the show. And for those who don't know who this guy Jake is, he's is a top five Las Vegas podcast of the Jake Gallon podcast, co-founder of Crypto, NFT Consultation, Firm Native Research He's a content creator, entrepreneur, and on top of that, he also is the Vegas Man of the Year in 2021 and an Entrepreneurs Magazine Top Las Vegas podcast. So with that said, all right, so with that
1: said, Jake, welcome to the stage. Andrew, thank you for bringing me on. Excited that we could finally do this. And I don't know if it was my internet connection or yours, but we're here and we're going to have a great conversation. Yes, I'm super excited. <laughs> so for those who don't know, Jake is an expert at
0: community building, NFTs, consultations, Web3. He's a stellar entrepreneur. He loves his city of Las Vegas, Nevada. It's all he ever talks about. And if you're ever in the area, hit him up. And with that said, we'll dive in here. And what I like to do is kind of talk about the super Hero's journey of, of how you got to where you are. So, one of the first questions that me and the audience had is tell us about when you grew up in because you're born and
1: raised in Vegas, right? Born and raised one of the call ourselves the unicorns. Only <laughs> 25% of the Las Vegas population uh, was born in the city. Very transient town. Wow. So, I got a unicorn here <laughs> and was able to capture him with the butterfly net. So, <laughs>
0: fortunately, it worked this time around. So you are growing up in Vegas, tell us, you know,
1: some of the first things you were proud of as a kid, just growing up in Vegas, growing up in Vegas, it's a very unique experience, it desensitizes you to sexuality, because of the nature of the strip, right? Because it's a very, yeah, it's a very female dominated city, there's a lot of women entrepreneurs, there's sex workers, you have strippers, you have cocktail servers, and you have a very gorgeous community that exists here. Um, But it's also very entrepreneurial based. The high school that I grew up at, was not the best, as you could say, I grew up in a lower middle class area. Graduation rate was under 50% every year that I was there. Because wow. And the reason why that Nevada generally is ranked 48th, 49th, or 50th in education is because most students end up dropping out and going and working on the strip and making, you know, anywhere from 60k to 100k a year serving drinks or being a VIP host or dealing cards. There's so much opportunity out here that education isn't generally in the purview. And that taught me at a very young age, the power of networking, right? One of the common cliches is that your network is your net worth. And in Vegas, that's completely true. I learned this at UNLV when uh, when I attended UNLV, graduated with a degree in kinesiology. I noticed that there was a large majority of students there who worked on the strip already. That was myself included. I worked 40 hours a week at Planet Hollywood and then later at Omnia nightclub as a busser. And at Planet Hollywood, I worked as a lifeguard and then went to receptionist, supervisor, cabana host, the basic premise of an average, I guess you could say growing adult male in the Las Vegas scene. (laughs) But my last two years at UNLV, you know, it became a grade one research uh, university. So not much preference. There was not much incentive for education. So you, kind of, the cool thing about Vegas though is it's a very young town. It's barely over a hundred years old. The strip wasn't built until the '50s, and just recently, I would say probably over the. F- last five or six years has started building outside of the strip outside of hospitality. Right now we have some very emerging and blooming markets the the film industry has moved out here, the adult entertainment industry, uh, tech, which we could go into myself and about 500 others are building this blooming NFT community that's existing. There's a very large creator economy out here, YouTubers who are moving out here. Movie stars, rap artists, musicians, painters, everyone is moving out here. You could even call, I guess, chefs an artist of some sort as well. So, what I realized growing up at a very young age is that one relationship can really change your life if you just meet the right person and they give you opportunities. There's so many experiences out here of coworkers or or colleagues who are either serving drinks at a table and they meet a guest who really likes their, their spirit, their charisma, their work ethic, and then offers them a job and then they never have to come back again. So the city on my podcast, before I moved it completely to crypto, I'd always ask, what does Las Vegas mean to you? I've said that to about 200 people by far 80% of the time everyone says opportunity. And that's generally actually from the transient implants here who've moved to Vegas, but aren't born here. And then for the 20% of locals that I've had, they generally say it means hummer community.
0: Hmm, interesting. And I never
1: thought about that. I mean, I admittedly grew up
0: in the suburbs of Oregon, and we had a little bit of a buffer. And it sounds like when you're in Vegas, you grow up real fast. <laughs>
1: wise beyond my years my friend but it's funny too because most people begin partying out here at a very young age Uh, first time I started drinking was 16 and then by the time I was 18 I was experimenting you know in in substances and Kind of like dabbling around on the strip in the frater- I was in a fraternity and we're throwing parties on the strip in the downtown. So then when you hit 21, you start going to the clubs, even though most people have fake IDs. So by the time most people hit about 23, 24, they're just like partied out already <laughs> because you've been doing it, been doing it for almost 10 years at that point. But there generally becomes a point and, the, and this happened to me as well. The temptative nature of the strip, where any day, any moment, any time, you could go to a strip club, you could go gamble and change your life, you know, you could lose everything, you could build literally anything that you want, and also lose everything that you have at any given moment or moment's notice that A lot of those who work on the strip or work in the hospitality develop severe substance abuse issues or alcoholism or gambling addictions or they become sex addicts or they don't know how to be alone because everything they do is socializing. We used to pregame literally everything or pregame before we to everything before we go to the movies before we go to bowling because alcohol is intertwined into pretty much everything that you do out here everything has a pregame, everything's revolves around drinking and partying. So you can really lose yourself. And that's part of my journey is actually, I was sober for three years, because I almost lost everything got into some legal troubles. And it was due to my abuse of drinking and doing drugs. And there was no violent behavior or anything like that. But I had to step aside for years and really gather myself and figure out what I wanted to do. I was there's one night where (laughs) <laughs> That's funny. I'll say. I've said this a few times in public. After my first year of working at Omnia, I was twenty three years old. I made over a hundred k. I was in the top one percent for income for somebody my age. I went to a strip club and dropped almost eight thousand dollars one night, just completely blitzed, partying. And you know, I, I had a good experience. Definitely had some stuff to not share publicly, <laughs> but it made me realize that it wasn't something that I truly enjoyed that much. The buyer's remorse that I felt in the morning was horrible. Oh my Mm -hmm. God, there's, you feel like you've lost everything, you know? And so, so a little bit after that, was when I started my entrepreneurial journey and I had to go sober for for many years. And I said that I wasn't going to come back to it until I felt like I was in a positive place. And I felt like my life was back on track to where I needed to be. And so then I didn't end up having another drink until May last year. So it was like almost three and a half years of complete sobriety, no smoking, no drinking, only caffeine the entire time. Working in the nightclub and working on the strip, I had dozens of friends and colleagues lose their lives to ODs and alcohol abuse. And that's the dark side of Vegas that a lot of people don't really tell you is that because of the uh, immense amount of opportunity and the immense amount of instant gratification that you could receive through the strip, whether it's through sexual satisfaction or monetary accrual, it's a great opportunity, but you have to have a, a fine balance or you need to have friends to help you realize that you could be going down the wrong path without you realizing. I like to call it and I've kind of coined it on my podcast of like this vicious Vegas circle where you just continually you go party, you hate yourself the next day, somebody hits you up and says, hey, I have a table at excess, you go there, same thing all over again, and next thing you know, Three, four years down the road, you're 30 years old and you haven't gotten anywhere and you're still working at this like dead end job.
0: You bring up a really good point. Like it's so easy to, excuse me, go and like run with the herd and go with the crowd and, and just be sucked into that black hole vortex of drinking, sex, drugs, like all that. As the unicorn of the unicorns, what did help you kind of have that inner guidance system that says, okay, make sure I have a good network. I do want to be an entrepreneur someday. Like what kind of helped that inner voice, per se?
1: I would say it was my own child, like unique childhood experience as I was an only child. And my parents had me late in life. My mom was 38. My father was 34. So there was this very large age gap. So I was kind of alone. I was definitely a very social person, always had friends at my house. I was always spending the night at other people's house. We were doing juvenile things out in the streets. And, you know, just things that kids in the 90s, like our age would do in the the early 2000s without cell phones, you could get into get into a lot of trouble. But I realized at probably towards the end of middle school or beginning of high school that I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I didn't know what the term entrepreneur was, but I knew that I wanted to live life on my own terms. So became heavily invested in, in sports when I was in high school. And I've always become heavily involved in whatever group I end up joining in middle school, I was in Hebrew school and high school, I was involved in multiple sports. In college, I was very involved in the fraternity. And then once I got out of college, I was heavily involved into the nightclub. But with the amount of capital that I was making and able to save at the nightclub, I knew that I needed to redirect it into something valuable or that I needed to go through some sort of experiences to get there. When I was in high school, I used to read a lot of letters or notes of elderly people on their deathbed, writing notes saying like, these are the 100 things that I wish I would have known before I pass away. Or these are the excerpts that I'd like to give to the youth of this generation. And the main common denominator of those was that if you believe in something, then just do it. At the end of the day, most of these people who were nearing the end of their life, they would always say that they think more about the things that they didn't do than the things that they did. And that really resonated and stuck with me still to this day. So I was generally always a a yes, man, I would any opportunity that was presented, I would go do I was constantly outgrowing my friend circles, which was really unfortunate because these friends that you grow up with in different stages of your life, high school, college, so on and so forth, you develop these like emotional connections to them. And sometimes it's hard to detach from it because of your professional endeavors and like where you want to be in life. But over time, it became easier to add that space between everybody and to build new friend circles. And then over time, there's this metaphor that I like to use all the time. Is I kind of see life as like Wizard of the Oz with this yellow brick road, right? When you first start, you're in your comfort bubble and you don't want to go anywhere, but you know that you have to go to the end to see what's behind all those curtains. And along this journey, you go through all of these crazy adventures, right? You're in the forest and you see the. Sca- Scarecrow and all these different people. And eventually, when you're going down this yellow brick road, you're gradually stepping out of your comfort bubble. So everything seems very scared. And then eventually everything becomes normalized. And then your comfort bubble comes catches back up to you. And so I was able to identify a lot of these moments where I felt like I was stagnating or I felt too comfortable with what I was doing. And so then I was able to step out of those and then go seek new opportunities of wherever they would be. And in Vegas, opportunities of plenty. You could literally take a dart and just throw it out into the open, and you'd probably hit three different opportunities. It's just being able to identify it and then being able to act on it is really some of the big differences. I love that. I love that. I love
0: the analogy you use about Yellow Brick Road. And we talk about behind the curtain. That's so true. I have to remind myself too that uh, you no know, matter how good of Facebook social media post that you see of how successful how happy people are like you never know what's really going behind the scenes and like how much they might only be happy for those two minutes out of the day to take that selfie but they might be miserable the rest of the day and so it's just a good reminder to recognize that as we're on our own journeys that there's always curtains that we put up that other people put up and and to be aware of that and I love hearing how you reading about yeah that life advice of what to do before you die I did did that when I was a kid as well and because I always believe in maximizing life and it to the fullest and embracing every opportunity. And, and it's good that you wanted to be an entrepreneur. I, I myself got lucky, per se, that my father's an entrepreneur, so at least knew it was possible at a young age. And so going back to your entrepreneurship journey, tell us about that. You, you knew you wanted to be an entrepreneur in high school. I believe you said you didn't really, say it's been five years, so you got more involved in 2017. And it's kind of tell us about your entrepreneurship journey from when you started and
1: to where you are today and feel free to brag all you want. We love, love you. <laughs> okay. So I graduated UNLV fall 2015. So my entrepreneurial journey didn't really start until after that. My calendar that I have, it says year seven, because it's actually seven years since I graduated college. So that's really when life started for me is not going by these social constructs that society wants you to follow. Because those are generally if you're following their herd, then you're not going to reap the benefits of the people who can control or grow the different allocations of social capital and fiscal capital and intellectual capital and so forth. Those are three terminologies that I use to identify different opportunities. I'll get into that once we get into crypto. You're good. So first year after college, really just partied. I'm not even gonna lie. I literally went to so many different raves across the country from Groove Cruise to Ultra to EDC, Coachella, Forest, just really went out and had a really good old time. And then during the end of 2016, I started following my first passion, which I still want to do, which was to try to write a book. It still sits on my computer. It's called the Raver's Hand Bible. And it's basically 200 pages of how to identify a rave, where to get the best spot within the crowd, how mm. to approach certain situations, it was a really cool experience. And then 2017 is when everything really changed. 2017, my father and I opened up an antique and collectible store called Next Gen Pickers. Growing up, I mentioned that I grew up in a lower middle class area. 2008 financial crisis happened. My father was a painter, lost his job, started participating in the, the growing trend of storage wars and American picker style, uh, treasure hunting. So I used to his benefits, the world of antiques and collectibles. And I had the capital and I knew that I needed to have some real world experience to succeed at entrepreneurship. And I didn't go in knowing that I was going to fail, but I knew there would be trouble ahead Most entrepreneurs generally don't hit the jackpot on their first business attempt. I've read that the average is about five to six businesses or different types of projects that an entrepreneur participates in Mm -hmm. before you find success. So opened up the antique store, Ran a storefront business, which, as we know, most of those are going to be obsolete within the next 10 years, 15 years, but it taught me how to deal in the the B2B side, dealing with banks, dealing with payment processors, dealing with other guests or customers and how to set up a store and all these different things that you can't even think of until you're in that position, you know, managing employees and dealing with your parents and, you know, just being a boss, like a young boss that same year. Also, my buddy moved back from Reno to Vegas, and he had a really cool idea when he started, when he was at UNR, and it was called Chameleon. And basically, Mm it was a B2C or C2C ticket verification app. So when EDC, when, when I was younger, EDC just moved to Vegas in 2011, a bunch of ticket fraud scammers, stuff like that. It's not nearly as bad now. And so he, we created this app where in short, we'd partner with ticket providers or event promoters, and they would give us the analytics. And then we'd put it through our system and you could download the app. And if somebody's selling you a ticket, you could scan the ticket. And if it was real and the experience was successful, you could rate them five stars or was a social media component to it, kind of like an Uber for tickets, essentially Mm -hmm. what the idea was. And then also that same year in 2017 is when I got invested into crypto. And this is kind of like one of those world shattering moments in my life. Maybe a few times before that uh, was when I did mushrooms when I was 18. That really broke down a lot of the social constructs that I thought existed, which really didn't. And then this one with crypto, a friend was working on an altcoin project. I won't mention it because this is part of the story I'm about to tell. (laughs) It was a smart contract platform based off of uh, humanitarian principles. So think of like Ethereum, but for the United Nations, essentially. So invested in that. And then he started telling me about crypto and about Bitcoin and Ethereum. And I was like, Wait, I've heard of Ethereum before. If you go back to my Twitter in 2016, I remember stumbling across Ethereum on Reddit in like October of 2016 and tweeting about it. And I was like, hey, this smart contract platform is really cool. But I never really put together that there was like a financial component to it. I just thought technology sounds really cool, you know? Yeah. And so 2017 really went heavy into crypto investing. I was trading tons of altcoins with if those people who are out there trading like Ant shares and Golem and NEO and gas and... See a coin and all these like weird things that were happening. Mm -hmm. I ended up making a decent amount of money during that time. And then in 2018, I took everything that I made, which was about six and a half Bitcoin at the time, approximately a little over $50,000, put it all into an ICO and lost everything. Everything Uh. everything that I'd made in 2017, gone. So now Mm -hmm. starting all over again. Had two businesses. I was down to like, a few thousand dollars. It was very risky. And that was a, a big turning point and learning moment for me that of how to be responsible with your finances. Didn't have any financial background before that. And so then over the next two, three years, that's that same year, I got sober, which was I think it was right before that moment. Actually, I was taking about half of what I was making at the nightclub and just buying Bitcoin and Dogecoin. Just those two only. And Whoa. In 2018? and 20... Yeah, end of 2018 was mostly Bitcoin. And then 2019, I started just piling money into Dogecoin. And I was <laughs> like, if the internet ever figures out what this thing is, then it's going to take a fucking rocket ship up. Yeah. Um, which, a little bit more on that. And so I was buying those two... I was spending 40 weeks or $40 a week on groceries, didn't buy any clothes, really just stopped going out, really cut down on my expenses. And I said, this is my last opportunity to really get in on this crypto rocket before it happens. So Mm -hmm. I was aggressively buying Bitcoin under $10,000 and Dogecoin around a third of a penny to a quarter of a penny. Wow. And end of 2019, we closed up the antique store worked on it for about two and a half years, really cool experience or one and a half years, ironically, or unironically, February 2020 is when we decided to close up uh, chameleon, which was about like two weeks before the pandemic happened. So (laughs) that was just like very good timing, because we Mm -hmm. would have been screwed really hard. And then the pandemic happened, the strip closed 30% unemployment in Las Vegas. And I'd always been a big fan of podcasts. I was a big fan of Joe Rogan and Tim Ferriss, Lex Friedman, and all of the like one-on-one type podcasters like we're doing here. And then I had been doing a ton of research actually on podcasts, went back towards the end of 2019, and I was watching every single one of Joe Rogan's episodes and I had a piece of paper next to me and a pencil and I was writing down all of the filler words that he had that he would say in an episode. And I started with the first 10 I watched completely through and then I would skip a few. So I probably watched a 100 or 200 like all the way through and I was watching how he improved through his podcasting skills and did the same thing with Tim Ferriss and then kind of got a grasp and realized all of these great podcasters, all of these just great entrepreneurs were absolutely terrible everything they did in the beginning. Absolutely (laughs) awful, but they gradually improve and the the one thing that they all shared was that they were very confident in their ability to to grow, not necessarily to, to succeed, but they were very confident that their skills would improve. And so when the strip closed, after about two weeks of sitting around in my house and watching Trump, <laughs> I just give this like barrage on Fox and watching the economy implode. I had this like do or die moment that if I was ever going to start a podcast, it was now it was during the time that everybody was sitting around, everyone was fearful. And I've learned in crypto that you always buy the fear, right? You buy the blood and sell, the, sell the greed, the basic financial motto.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But I essentially did that with the podcast. And I went and tapped into all of my different networks that i had grown. Right. I could mention that I continually outgrew a lot of my friend circles. So I tapped into all these different entrepreneurial and leader networks. My first two guests were nurses. The for one of the nurses I had had the first COVID patient in Las Vegas. She worked in the respiratory division. Wow. so those, those two episodes did really well, and then the downloads tanked. I literally, the first two episodes had like 200 downloads each in a week, and then the third episode had like five downloads, and I was like, Oh <laughs> my god! <laughs> yeah. I was like, Oh geez, but I was like, I know if you just keep growing, this is the time to network to work on my conversational skills, and just understand if this is something that I actually want to pursue. And it took me about four months, I was doing two episodes per week, sometimes three, all I had to do is just sit at home, there's no job or anything like that. And I was just reaching out to people I wrote before I started with podcasts, I wrote a list of like 200 different people in Las Vegas that I wanted to meet with or network with. And to my surprise, I would just DM some of these large accounts and they would respond and so, say, Yeah, it was weird, right? It's like you have no podcast, these people won't respond. But if you say, Hey, I'd like to share your story on my podcast, like here's four hours of my time. And do you money? Like, right? Do you want my grandmother's maiden name and the <laughs> address that I grew up on my social security number? <laughs> Like that was like another epiphany that I had was that we're social creatures at the end of the day. And as long as this world that we're moving into of this creative economy, if our conversations can be captured and turned into content, then it's mutually beneficial for both parties to participate in a podcast or whatever sort of content creation that you're engaging engaging in. So during this time, continue push on and it was about around episode 60 or so was the last time I really had to reach out to anybody. It was uh, I've done almost 200. Now, around episode 60, I was getting bombarded by like PR companies and marketing companies and friends with referrals and and, like verified accounts reaching out to me and reporters. It was so crazy, like how fast it happened. And so I'd continue to start taking on as much as I can having all these conversations. And meanwhile, I'm doing this all completely myself. I'm doing all the editing i'm doing all the social media posting doing the conversation doing engagement and having the conversation setting it up but it was a really really cool experience and then everything again changed last year so i've been in crypto since then 2021 the rise of nfts <laughs> mm-hmm. nfts came onto my radar in january Didn't know what what NFTs were, I'm going to be completely honest, Um, completely missed that boat. And around the same time, my business partner, the co-founder of Native Research, had reached out to me on Twitter and he said, his name's Chris Devitt. He said, hey, I think we should meet up. And I just said, why? And he said, you keep popping up on my Twitter feed. And when I would tweet about, I've been tweeting about crypto and Bitcoin since 2017. But it was never the like shill fest that you see of like buy my coin number go up it was like very philosophical and ideological views on the technology and where it was headed and he said i've never seen anybody have this much in-depth knowledge about crypto that lives in vegas so we ended up meeting and we ended up getting on a bunch of calls and turns out we shared a lot of the same views of what was happening and the potential integration into las vegas and the parallels so the first nft ended up buying was Called Mooncats. It was a what's called a a rediscovered project. So once NFTs started blowing up, there were a bunch of blockchain enthusiasts who were going through the history of various blockchains and finding abandoned NFT projects Mm -hmm. and recovering them and bringing them to everyone's attention. Mooncats at the time was the second oldest NFT project. And through my own experience of owning an antique and collectible store, that completely made sense to me. What's called the first generative art project. So it was the first ever. NFT that was created by an algorithm, essentially, as the first cat NFT. And there's all kinds of other things that happen. So I took about half of the profits that I made from Dogecoin, and just what we call aped in just aped into it, put a lot of money into it. And it ended up turning out pretty well. And then it really piqued my interest into NFTs, but more so in this subsector or niche of NFTs called historical NFTs. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that a lot of people were interested in Mooncats so much that Sotheby's Auction House, the largest auction house in the world, reached out to me about selling Mooncats at Sotheby's. Wow! And so, of course, I'm going to say yes. So I ended up being the first person to sell Mooncats at Sotheby's. We generated a little over $100,000 in sales from that. And a month before the Sotheby's sale... I also was a part of a $200,000 sale where I sold a Genesis Mooncat, which is a black one, part of the collection to a very large crypto influencer named Pintoshi, who now has like 500,000 followers for 70 ETH at the time. So it was a little over 200,000. So between those two events and around that same time, I decided that this was my opportunity to finally build an image in crypto. So. I realized that a lot of these historical NFTs, there's no information out there at all. Like zero, right? It was just mm-hmm. rediscovered. I had a YouTube channel. I had a podcast. At the time, I think my YouTube channel was only around like 400 subs. I mean, it's not much now. It's around 1200 now. But I just started doing straight webinar type videos and tutorials about Mooncats. If you go to my YouTube channel, there's probably about 25 videos on there now. Oh. And it turns out, A lot of people watched them. There's some videos (laughs) that have like close to 2000 views in a very Mm -hmm. like niche kind of collection. And I started gaining a lot of followers since that Sotheby's event. Uh, My Twitter account went from 2000 to, I think it's a little over 6,000 followers now. The Instagram account went from 2000 to about 9,000 followers. LinkedIn, Facebook, friend requests. And it just like, to me, it felt like the right moment. That moment to start creating Mooncat specific content, again, with the same philosophy with the podcast was specialize in a niche, become a leader in that niche, and then you can grow outwards from there. So now I've become one of the community leaders for Mooncats. And now my podcast, the Jake Allen podcast, I've converted into an NFT and crypto podcast primarily, and now it covers mostly the historical NFT space. So I'm going around at this point in time and trying to network with as many historical NFT creators, influencers, investors. And then once that brand becomes bigger, then obviously I could go into the broader NFT ecosystem or crypto or wherever that kind of leads. But during the same time, and I'm almost done. So is oh, <laughs> fascinating so no, to hear. You're good. Yeah. <laughs> during that time that Chris and I met up with Native Research, a woman reached out to me. She messaged me and she said, hey, you have a lot of technology or you have a, a large background and experience in technology and blockchain. I think you should come to Blackfire and we should meet. I had no idea what this place was. She said that she was a huge fan a fan show. I went to this building, four story building. It's a hundred and fifty acre plot owned by UNLV in collab with UNLV, multi-million dollar facility. And I'm like, what? Did I just walk into like (laughs) four stories? There's like accelerators in here and gaming equipment and esports arenas. I'm like, what? Like hundreds of gaming computers. What the fuck is going on (laughs) here? Yeah. And Mm -hmm. so we end up sitting and talking for three hours. And she basically says, like, I'm a big fan in your show. I'm a big believer in whatever you're doing. How can I help? And so I ended up bringing Chris back, and we s- decided that we're going to start hosting blockchain meetups inside Blackfire Innovation which is where the UNLV Office of Economic Development is, the International Gaming Institute, a lot of like regulators and stuff have offices there. So we started hosting meetups and I told them and Chris and I had shared the same vision that crypto and Vegas are very synonymous. It's a 20, they're both 24 seven. They both embrace the entrepreneur, the creators. They're both permissionless. You could go in it, to a casino floor and you can participate in whatever endeavors that you want. There is a little bit of limitation there, as I mentioned before can't lose all your money and engage in some, some lewd behaviors. But <laughs> same with same with crypto. It's open source. Anybody can participate. It's based off of meritocracy. The amount of work that you put in and the effort that you put in as well, you can receive the amount of merit that you show, right? It's just like put in the effort and you'll be rewarded for your endeavors. So at this time, we scaled the local crypto community and synonymous with there was another NFT group which we collabed with the first NFT meetup had 4 people the last NFT meetup had almost 400 wow. and this is in less than a year and our NFT meetup or that's the NFT meetup and it's a similar same community our native research and UNLV meetup started with about 50 people we had close to 100 people this last time we had Inc executives, three members of the gaming control board, um, representatives from the UNLV, like president's office, different research labs, entrepreneurs, all kinds of weird people coming in and trying to find a lot of interest. But then we, we turned to a point where we realized that crypto and Vegas is going to have a little more trouble, a little more rug tape. Crypto, if you just say crypto, it kind of has a negative stigma to it because of the, the Silk Road and mm-hmm. Bitcoin's anonymous and blah, blah, blah. But what we realize is that NFTs and Vegas are actually much more synonymous than using a cryptocurrency integration, simple of like, take Bitcoin, play craps kind of idea, right? So with NFTs, they could be event tickets, they could be membership rewards, they can have all types of utility, experience based art collectibles, blah, blah, blah. And so... We now, through Native and our consultation firm, uh, we're partnered with the city of Las Vegas, we have regular calls with the city of Las Vegas, we work with the Gaming Control Board, UNLV, the Arts District, Downtown Leaders, and the startup accelerator, the largest startup accelerator in Nevada called Startup Nevada that's raised or has raised over $70 million for uh, people who've come through there. And wow. we've kind of just become this, like, we've become like the, the runway controllers, those guys who are on the runway with the orange traffic cones who are kind of like directing people where to go. That's kind of what we've been with the city of Las Vegas is helping people find right direction and build this like large community and really turn Vegas into an international NFT hub. Uh, and that's kind of like where we are today. Just had a conversation with somebody who's about to open up an NFT gallery down here in Las Vegas and the art system yeah. where I live. And we're just continually growing and I'm building a brand. And now I'm going to start moving into something that's interests me for a long time, content creation, which is called crypto lifestyle. So think of like your general YouTubers who walk around and they give those like vlogs or they go review businesses and stuff like that. I want to try to turn my channel into that direction, but I'm currently still in the process right now, but I'm somebody who's a big firm believer in open open sourcing ideas. So that yeah. um, you, if you're somebody who stays true to your word, and you say it in public, that um, you'll actually do it. So this is the situation that I am now, but I'm having so much fun it was rough for many, many years, didn't know if I was going to make it. But I knew that if I just put my head down and continued on, then I would I would be here. And so it's been almost two years since I've worked at the nightclub live only off of my crypto investments today, and we'll see what happens during this year. Who really knows?
0: Yeah, I love your journey so much because you're one of the people who you made a bunch of money and then you lost it all. And you made a bunch of money and you're like, okay, how could I <laughs> keep coasting this time or I keep increasing versus losing it all? And so, and the fact that you mentioned too that people have five or six businesses before they quote unquote succeed. Like, I love how you're the exhibit day. You're like, hey, I started chameleon, I started investing in this coin, I did this venture, and then bam, all of a sudden this NFT venture, your podcast, your brand's blowing up. So that's very exciting to hear about. And, and diving deeper into the, the NFT space. So let, let's pretend that people are tired of hearing NFTs everywhere and like, <laughs> what is going on? Obviously, you probably uh, talk about this day in and day out. But for those listening to this, this show, like, if you want to start from scratch in the NFT space, and you're like, oh, it'd be cool to be able to buy something and then sell it for x Mm -hmm. more later like how would you advise someone to quote
1: unquote start from scratch in the nft space it's, it's so tough because nfts have really only been around they've been around since 2011 but they really didn't blow up until recently so a lot of the tools still haven't been built and the acceleration of adoption is vastly outpacing the tools that have been built so There is no real way to start. I would say the best way to start is to understanding what exactly it is. A lot of people think it's just an image that's a token on a blockchain, but it's really not that. What NFTs are, and I could, I could throw a few definitions at and we'll see which one sticks. Mm -hmm. It's digital ownership. Digital ownership has never existed in humanity. Some may say, yeah, but I own my avatars inside Fortnite, but Fortnite can repossess those at any time, right? Um, mm-hmm. The stories, the creator of Ethereum, Vitalik, actually started Ethereum because he said that he had been leveling up some Warlock in WoW for years. And World of Warcraft repossessed it from him and took it from him. And he was so pissed that he ended up creating Ethereum. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> uh, so that's, that's, wow. that's, that's the basic idea. Because we are moving into this digital world, this creator economy. You could call it ready player one minus hopeful dystopic outcome that is in ready player one. I hope we're all living in containers in terms of like, so you could look at it from what it is. You could look at it from what people are doing, right? From the market side. I like to call it a gamified social arenas. So if you're an investor, every type of asset that you invest in has a market cap. Same with NFTs. The only difference with NFTs is that there's, a, it's a gamified experience. So there's a token, some have different game, like game mechanics of like staking and all these different principles that are tied to it. And so you're basically a bunch of people are just throwing a bunch of money into a pool and playing this game. And, but then it's, what's cool is you're scaling different technology on top of it. Cause it's programmable. Also what it is, is tokenized internet culture. So. For those who live primarily on the internet for 10 plus years, mostly Generation Z and some of the younger millennials like ourselves, It's a completely different society than what what is presented in the real world. There's a a pseudonymous economy. A lot of people, you can build your own identity on the internet, right? Like the Mm -hmm. early adoptions of that was if you had an AOL screen name, right? You could put whatever screen name you want. People ask ASL, age, sex, location, and you could put whatever numbers you want. You could literally be whoever you want. So now with NFTs and, and a pseudonymous economy, you can literally build that avatar out if you want to be a warlock or if you want to be Jake 2.0 right or you want to be Andrew the the Yeti and you can buy a <laughs> Yeti avatar and you can brand yourself as a Yeti and then you can take that avatar and that persona and, and turn it 3d and turn it and then walk with that identity through different metaverses different games right so imagine if you had this new internet identity that you own you own every single piece to it you own the IP over the name you own the intellectual capital, the social capital, the followers, and then you could take it into any world, right? You could go take it into GTA. You could go take it into a call of duty and all these new mm-hmm. games that are, that are evolving. Because right now, the faulty issue with centralized gaming is that if I buy a gun in call of duty, I can't take it to any other first person shooter games. But with, mm. but with NFTs, you can't because you own that gun and it's the technology isn't completely there, but the weapons are interoperable to play within all the other games. So this is why you see a lot of game NFTs work very well with games and a lot of gamers understand that there is a lot of hate, though, on NFTs, too. I don't know if it's because people don't actually understand what's going or there is a little bit of the tech bro culture where large numbers and large sales, like I mentioned earlier, intimidate people or salty is not the right word, but they're angry that they didn't get to participate in that early innovation and and reap the benefits of making those large amounts of money. And then it kind of gets thrown in their face sometimes as well. Well, so you have this kind of like clash that's existing, but people will understand and the cool thing with NFTs, an uh, example I use a lot is let's take an, an NFT car or an NFT Lambo and a real Lambo, right? Both can equally be worth $250,000. What are the things that you could do with both of these? Mm-hmm. Both of these I could sell, I could buy, I could loan it. I can drive them around, right? I could drive one in the real world, I could drive one in the metaverse. With the I could burn them or blow them up, right? I could take the token version and send it to a burn address so it's gone forever. I could take the Lambo and blow it up whatever I want or do yeah. whatever. I want. But what are some of the things in the digital world that you can't do in the real world? It's I could turn that Lambo into a picture. I could turn that Lambo into Uh, a larger car collection, I could program on top of it, I could change it to fly in certain circumstances, like there's so many different things on the internet that have never been explored, because people haven't been able to use the power of digital ownership. So I'll explain it in one other definition and then then I'll let you talk. (laughs) Basically, all you're doing is the blockchain is just like a decentralized ledger, right? It's an open source database that anyone can view at any time. You can audit it. You could see all the history that's ever happened and you could store uh, data inside of it as well, right? Right. So before, the best way to describe it is a big use case is for photographers and for meme artists, right? Mm -hmm. How many times have you screenshotted a meme and posted it, right? Or or taken somebody's photography and shared it. But you Mm -hmm. have no idea who the artist is in the Web2 world, which is the non-crypto world. The amount of times that they've tried to show ownership through a watermark or they tag their Twitter handle in it somewhere small or there's this like these little tiny segments of personalization that they try to tie in there. But then people in take go on Photoshop and erase it and claim it as their own. Yeah. But if you took the picture or you created the meme and you meant it to the blockchain, you could prove that you were the first person that did because there's a timestamp there and it comes from your wallet. So those are easy use cases. That's why the primitive technologies right now of art and collectibles has worked so well because you could prove that you're an owner of these tokens. And then in those tokens, you can add different utility. Like if you own a board ape, you can go to this in-person event by proving that you own it because you have the token itself or the password behind it.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I saw that actually there's like a New York City restaurant where you have to have a certain token just to be able to eat there and like each tokens like costs a minimum like $30,000 like, or something like that, which is wild. And so you mentioned that yeah, right now the demand way over exceeds the supply for the NFT space at the moment. And I recently had my first NFT experience. I got involved in bro, bro, Tomatoes or bro tomatoes. Unless you <laughs> saw that launch. <laughs> and I forget like Nick something on Twitter. He's an influencer. and He launched it for good cause, like help feed more people and stuff. But it was interesting. You know, I had to get like a phantom wallet and then uh, he used a uh, soul or for Solana. Solana. Yeah. And then I had to get, a, use a Solana to then buy the bro Tomato, and then uh, be able to add it to my NFT collection kind of thing. So when you said like, it's actually trickier to get involved. People realize like I, I agree because I'm like, oh, this is and I consider myself decently technically savvy and it was pretty tricky. But if you were to, like try and walk your grandma through getting an NFT, how, how would you go about
1: walking your grandma through getting an NFT? It depends on on the technical literacy of grandma, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> the UI and the UX for crypto is very bad right now they're working though on different solutions to make it as user friendly as possible but you could take that that issue and you can apply it to the internet of the 90s -hmm. it's a similar idea and this is critics of crypto like to bash that you know it's very energy intensive Or the amount of money that's being cycled through, it could go to better causes and all of these different applications of uh, futility that people like to throw at it. It's something that could be fixed. It's something that's actively being worked on. And you just have to give it time. It's nothing's perfect to start. Although with the exponential curve of technological adoption increases every day by a few units upwards, right? It becomes like that hockey stick growth. Mm-hmm. crypto will scale much faster than the internet did. And then whatever is after crypto or integrated with crypto will scale much faster than crypto did. That's why te- I think NFTs are scaling so much faster. So mm-hmm. then the next thing of the metaverse, which is the big buzzword, right? Facebook turn is turning their company into a metaverse company. The metaverse will probably scale faster than NFTs are and then social tokens and so on and so forth until the next technology outside of crypto or cryptographic function proof is adopted. So I just tell people like, grandma, you're gonna have to hold on for a little bit unless you really wanna put your time in commit. You go to Coinbase if you're in America and that's the most user-friendly. I always say, go check out things on OpenSea just to see what kind of interest you have. Mm-hmm. The best source of information you're going to find in crypto comes through Twitter first. Twitter is a primary communication platform. Discords. Discords, for those who don't know, it's just basically the gamified version of Slack, right? Slack is for mm-hmm. professional corporate life. Discord is for crypto and gamers and podcasts. Those are the three best sources. Be very weary of YouTubers who are shilling bags because they are paid shillers. How-to videos do really well. But if somebody's telling you a coin is going to moon, just know that there's some sort of ulterior motive, generally some (laughs) sort of financial compensation that has been tied to their reasoning for saying why Dogecoin is going to go to $4,000 and have a $4 quadrillion market cap oh my gosh (laughs) yeah Yeah. Mm -hmm. just sitting down and trying to understand what's happening i think is very very important and this is the message that i try to echo to all of my peers and all my friends whether they're here in vegas or out on the internet is that things are changing pretty rapidly you do not want to get stuck behind and it is still early yes i think 300 million people who have ever purchased cryptocurrency there's about a million people who have ever purchased nfts which when you look at the larger scope of the world, I think 4 billion people, I believe, have the internet. So you're saying you're only 10% of the way there. I mean, as internet as internet applications are adopted, like Elon Musk's Starlink, right, that 4 billion will go to hopefully 7 billion. And then those 300 million people in crypto could eventually go to 7 billion. Same with NFTs. So you're never too early. You're never too late, honestly, either. I guess it just depends on what interests you most with crypto and NFTs. Are you interested in making money? Because if you're interested in making money, you're surely going to get wrecked. Um, all with crypto, all you have to do is just be in the market and be patient. I can't tell you how many times I've missed out on literally millions of dollars by selling too early when I should have just sat on my hands. So just buy and hold like it's literally the easiest if you think you can outtrade the market, you're probably not going to be able to the market is this internet beast of greed and despair and depression and intellectuals and curious people. That's why these charts are so volatile is everyone's still trying to figure out what exactly it even means. But just know that the technology actually has a lot of use cases and they are beginning to emerge. And this is why I like to participate in the NFT space. I think that it's much more open for the creator. I think it's because these NFTs, you could tie a personality to the person who's buying it. Similar to if you're familiar with Gary Vee, when he was selling sports cards, there's a higher value value for the card that Gary V is selling than if I tried to sell that same card to you. Because you could say, oh, Gary V used to own that card. It's so similar with NFTs where you say, oh, cat dad, cat dad's me. That's my pseudonym in crypto. We mm-hmm. need this moon cat. So therefore it has applied value because he's contributed this much effort to the crypto space. So that's the financial component. But a lot of our clients and people that I actively engage with who are just interested in crypto are actually bringing up a lot of interesting utility and use case perspective from it. The gentleman I just spoke to earlier is opening up an NFT gallery in Las Vegas, and he wants to do NFTs for that, but in terms of like a membership, right? So you have the NFT is a ticket, but then the NFT is also redeemable for discounts that could be airdropped to you and coupons and one of one experiences and future airdrops or a whitelist for projects that may come out there or you own the NFT to his gallery, and then you have a one time redeemable ticket to display all of your NFTs in his gallery and host your own event. So it's the NFT really exudes the curious individuals who like to embark on wild experiences and journeys. Like, it's the easiest way and most complex way to put it.
0: Yeah. And and I know OpenSea, like, the top NFT
1: platform at the moment, right? They are the largest. It's similar to everybody shopping at one Walmart in the entire world. That's what (laughs) OpenSea is right now. There's a few different marketplaces, but right now it commands, like, 95% of the volume. Wow. So... Obviously, if you're in technology, you know that the way to succeed is that if there's a Goliath in the space, the best thing to do is just unbundle one section of what they do best and then become a specialized version of that. Mm-hmm. So, we're starting to see this now with OpenSea as the major NFT marketplace. There's now Looks Rare, which is a decentralized marketplace who's trying to do the same thing. And now we're starting to see like gaming-specific NFT marketplaces. I've seen like an influencer-specific NFT marketplace. So the competitors are now trying to unbundle what OpenSea has done. So I don't think they'll definitely always be in the center stage. But just like today with most crypto exchanges who trade fung- what's called fungible tokens, Bitcoin, Ethereum, Solana, all these other ones, Binance was a Goliath for a while. Before that, BitMEX was a Goliath. Uh, Coinbase was a Goliath. Now FTX is here, but a lot of the volume is spread across multiple exchanges. And so I think that's eventually what will happen with OpenSea over some time. It's just, as I said, that the amount of demand is vastly outpacing the tools that have been the set in stone yet so we'll get there eventually but there's a lot of issues that openc has and um, we could probably talk another two hours on
0: yo i bet and
1: just double checking too, ftx is different than forex right yeah so ftx is the now it's the most valuable crypto exchange in the world it was just sam bankman freed sbf is 29 years old he's the richest billionaire under 30 years old so he's 29 he's worth i think 30 billion dollars he yes. um, the heat arena is now called ftx arena he plays basketball and they're sponsor for ufc you'll see ftx and they are sponsored with the mlb there's a ftx thing on the side of resort world out here in las vegas so they're really all over the place he was also joe biden's second largest donor so hmm. there's some whether that's for lobbying or whatever the agenda is there he's a really cool guy just a young kid who made this literally all in four years wow he, he didn't get into crypto until 2017
0: Oh my gosh. Oh, I think I heard his story on, on My First Million where he figured out that you can sell higher in Japan's Bitcoin marketplace versus America's Bitcoin bar- marketplace. So he found a way to like create an algorithm you can buy in America and sell in Japan and just be making hundreds of thousands dollars per week, essentially.
1: Yes, um, or- so it's actually called the kimchi premium. It was in Korea. That premium actually existed in the traditional markets as well. But then there is a central governing body over the regulated markets of, of stocks and commodities. They could easily cut out that premium and give it to all of the payment processors. So he ended up getting... and. Definitely might not have done everything completely out in the open to get that done because you had to have a residency in Korea to have it done to trade that 15% premium. Yeah, but he managed to do it and made a bunch of money and FTX is we call it like the DGEN exchange. It's just for leverage traders. Mostly people who are trading on margin and options and things like that. For most of the world, the FTX US is only a small version of what the global FTX actually is.
0: Interesting. And what about, too, so you talk about OpenSea, like, if I'm grandma, and I want to be able to get an, an NFT from OpenSea, do I first need to download Coinbase, upload some money to Coinbase, get some Ethereum, and then get download a different Coinbase wallet, put Ethereum in that wallet, then I go to NFT... And then I can pick and choose what I want,
1: depending on what's in my Coinbase wallet. Is that correct? This is what frustrates a lot of beginners because you do have to have some sort of understanding to crypto or be internet native. Mm -hmm. So right now with OpenSea, you can't buy with dollars because dollars are regulated by the US government and since it's an unregulated market, they don't allow it. Only Nifty Gateway on Gemini is allowed for dollars, at least time of this recording. You have to acquire Ethereum. The best way to acquire Ethereum, which is an asset, is to buy it on Coinbase. And then you, you take Coinbase, you take the Ethereum that you bought on Coinbase and you send it to what's called a Web3 wallet which is MetaMask. So you send it to Mm. your Ethereum wallet inside of MetaMask. MetaMask and what Web3 is, Web3 is like the equivalent of signing into a webpage and signing in with Google or signing in with Facebook. Instead in Web3, you're signing in with your financial crypto wallet. Mm. So instead of having it saying Andrew Weiss is signing into Facebook, it's saying... Andrew Weiss's wallet, essentially, but a bunch <laughs> of numbers and letters that represent you. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's the power of being a self sovereign individual is that you don't have to have your image tied to it, you just have the wallet where you can choose to be public, or you could choose to be pseudonymous synon- or completely anonymous, you can, it's up to you how you want to present yourself and your financial holdings to the world, you don't have to disclose your identity. And this is why a lot of people choose to embrace crypto. But what's coming, hopefully this month, hopefully, is Coinbase is opening up Coinbase NFT marketplace. And they are simplifying the entire experience where you can just purchase NFTs with dollars and call it a day. Wow. Wow! They They just announced recently that they partnered with MasterCard. So MasterCard will be doing the payment processing for the dollars. And Coinbase is going to be rolling this out. They're supposed to roll it out in december and now it's february so i'm hoping it's coming pretty close but they coinbase nft marketplace has over three million people already pre-registered and there's only a million people who've ever bought an nft on OpenSea. so you're saying the market is essentially going to like explode 10x probably the amount of participants which means all the prices go up, which means more demand. And it's like the thing that everyone hates where NFTs just keep going up in value is going to keep happening. (laughs) So just got to understand that it's not too late. I thought I was too late when I bought Bitcoin at $1,200 or $1,800 was my first Bitcoin investment. I thought Ethereum was $111 my first purchase. I thought I was late. I was like, this thing is already up like 40,000 X or whatever the case is. Because Bitcoin started at, I think, a third of a penny. Mm -hmm. Not too late. You just got to look at the difference between crypto and I'll call them the legacy financial um, instruments of stocks. Is this idea of mean reversion? So in stocks, mean reversion means that once you vastly outpace the amount of buying pressure or selling pressure, then eventually it just gravitates back the the medium and the the average. And that's because you have you have market makers on both ends, making sure that it stays within a certain allocation because whatever is happening behind the scenes. In crypto, it's all about adoption, right? So in the stock market and the, the gold markets, the amount of people who have been participating has already been happening for hundreds of years at this point. So you're probably not going to see a 1% or 2 3% growth in people participating in stocks But now with crypto, essentially start at zero. And so to get up to 300 million, we still have another 100x from here just for cryptocurrencies and then nfts you probably have another thousand x or ten thousand x over that Mm -hmm. amount of time but with nfts it's going to become there's so much more utility that can be intertwined into nfts as with coins are pretty much just a store of value or a transactional layer so you call it the settlement layer i guess you could say so never too late grandma just you want to go through the process to learn how to navigate crypto you could just talk in how to buy an nft on youtube and there's a lot of stuff Or just wait for Coinbase to roll out their NFT marketplace where you could just buy with dollars and simplify the entire experience.
0: And will you still be able to buy an NFT on Coinbase marketplace for like 20 bucks and then someone could still offer you 40
1: bucks to buy it from you kind of thing? The metrics should definitely be the same. It depends on what what you're buying. Obviously with Ethereum, this is where we come into some of the technical complexities. Ethereum has gas issues right now, which basically means that the network is congested and the solution layers haven't been either properly adopted or built yet. So mm-hmm. some of these transactions are getting up to literally $100 just to buy an NFT. And then you have to pay the 5000 or whatever it is on top of it. Jeez. So Ethereum blockchain has become highly disadvantageous towards the beginners who do not have a lot of capital to allocate to the space. So now they're mm-hmm. trying these alternative chains like Solana and Tezos and Avalanche and I guess now Theta and some of these other ones because there is essentially no community so you get to be one of the first movers so everything is theoretically pretty cheap because there is no culture that's been built so you get to help build the culture but also means that you have a much longer road ahead of you to get to you know these crazy 69 million dollar sales that have that have happened
0: hmm. Interesting. This is so
1: wild to think about and talk about. (laughs) Yeah, There's a lot of trade offs. It's just understanding and it comes down to internet culture, you're trading against people who are building their own identity, their own persona, but they're also self sovereign. So that means that the entire and there's never been a time in the world where every single person on the world can participate in any sort of financial market just with a computer and an internet connection. Yeah. Before in the traditional markets, you had to be an accredited investor, which means you had to have a million dollars of assets. But then how do you get a million dollars of assets if you're not allowed to invest? Oh, but the SEC is protecting you so that you don't basically wreck yourself and become poor based off poor financial literacy and decision making. But what on the contrary and what's alternatively happened is that those who now participate in a decentralized and permissionless network, they've actually accrued a lot of money and even generations upon generations amounts of wealth. So what we've been told from the US government and from society is that they're protecting you. But actually, they've been harming us this entire time.
0: Yeah, because a lot more people are being rich versus a a select few becoming rich, essentially.
1: Largest transfer of generational wealth in human history. It's you could go back to my Twitter from when I first got into it. It's a, a belief that I've held very firm ever since I discovered what Bitcoin was. I've never had so much conviction in my entire life than reading the Bitcoin white paper and be like, holy shit, this is the future. And I still have a large amount of faith in Bitcoin. There's a lot of conversation and argumentative discourse surrounding Ethereum versus Bitcoin and semantics and culture and maximalism and toxicity and all these different things that you can find. But the cool thing about crypto is that it bleeds into every single industry that exists in society tech, finance, media, art, collectibles, psychology, you could literally go on and on and on and name every single industry healthcare, like education, continually finds its way into everything and has utility. So it's there for anybody that is either interested or wants to build their life, especially in this creative and digital economy where There was a report that came out today that over 50% of Las Vegas jobs are probably going to be automated away in the next five years. And so you can with a lot of other jobs as well. People are having remote conversations like this. All the interviews are now remote. People are working remote from home. People are ordering delivery. They're taking their Physical prescription and mental health prescription online. It's not going to change. And the only thing that's going to happen is that once we get past this like web two medium and technology scales we'll be having this conversation in VR or AR of some sort. And so it'll be digital, but it'll feel more real than, than what this is. And obviously some of the bandwidth and stuff that has to be worked out as well.
0: Yeah. And going back to, uh, when you talk about sitting on your hands, like now that you've learned from those experiences, like how do you know how long to hold on to an NFT or how long to stay invested in a crypto? And I know you're not a financial advisor, so this is not quote unquote financial <laughs> advice, <laughs> but like based on what you've learned, like do you have any like general rules of thumb that, that's worked for you? And- that space
1: now that i live off of my investments i'm a bit more conservative than i was when it comes to nfts i try not to buy five or ten of anything at the most unless i have like a very very high conviction bet my thesis is in crypto has always been to pretty much go all in on something that you believe in and that's how you really acquire generational wealth there's only four things that i've really gone all in on and all of them have worked really well in 2017 was Bitcoin, in 2019 was Doge, 2020 was Ethereum, and 2021 was Mooncats. So 2022 hasn't came yet. But those are the only four that have really gone like 80% of my portfolio. But that's because I've done a lot of due diligence and research to understand like where it's going to be. And then you have to actively manage it when you put that much of allocation in it. I would say that FOMO is one of the big drivers of these exponential price increases where you just see that green candle and it's up 400%. It's people fearing that they're gonna miss out on this life-changing opportunity. But being in crypto now five years, I've learned that these life-changing opportunities happen literally every day. Literally every day. Yes, some of the opportunities have a smaller window. But a lot of these opportunities, if you just hold it and slightly size out when you feel comfortable, then probably make more money. But one thing that I would say, which where I left millions of dollars on the table, but completely changed my life was with my Dogecoin trade, right? So I was buying Dogecoin literally at the bottom, a quarter a penny to a third of a penny, 15 sats to 20 sats if you denominate it in Bitcoin. I sold everything at five cents. So I pretty much missed out on the entire move upwards, but I still did have a fresh like 20, 30 X. (laughs) Yeah. And I was sitting there, I was sitting there at the computer. And I kept playing the thought in my head, I hadn't been back to Omnia, calling people back pretty soon. And I realized that I could literally change my life and live off of this money for probably four or five years, if I just sell everything now. And this, like, this sense came over me. It was the same sense of going in all in on, on Mooncats. It was the same thing of starting the podcast. It was that you need to do this right now because having a safety net, you will treat your life differently. If you know that if you make a bad decision, you're protected by the money that you've made. I never had a safety net in my entire life, all the money that I've ever made, or that I've ever spent was dollars that I I made. And so I never had a safety net my entire life. And it was the one moment where I realized, this is my safety net. This is where I can now operate life completely different than 28 years that I had operated beforehand. Mm -hmm. And that decision ultimately ended me just saying, Jake, you're an idiot if you don't sell everything now. Sold everything, and then at 10x after that. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> Missed it but, by that much. <laughs> but, uh, I, I've had a few friends have the same situations happened where they sold something and it gave them a massive safety net, and then it continually like quadrupled after that. But they... I offered them the same opinion and the same advice. And maybe they were upset about it in a second, but they did tell me like, thank you for offering that advice. Because now that I have some money in the bank, and I could buy a house or whatever, I approach my investing thesis differently. And now I don't really make those super degen trades, I make investments based off of things that I prefer and things I like and things that I'm interested rather than just the number going up and the the FOMO induced buy pressure.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm also active on Twitter. I like reading this guy's investment advice that when you start off not having money, you got to do high risk, high reward behavior. But then once you get money, you got to do lower risk, uh, lower reward behavior kind of thing. Also, you like to use the analogy of the lobsters, too. Like as a lobster, like everyone's like fighting each other. But then once you get to that next
1: tier, it's just like,
0: oh, I can breathe now.
1: (laughs) Yeah, Having that comfort, man, it's... Sometimes I feel bad for a lot of my friends because, you know, I encouraged them to participate in crypto and all of these different financial things for five years, maybe one or two actually did. And, you know, I get to celebrate those wins with them. But I don't get to celebrate these wins with with those people that I've shared a lot of emotional connection with my entire life. Mm-hmm. And so you feel this like sense of guilt that overcomes you. But you know that you got here based off of your own contrarian thinking, your own decision making and the confidence that you have in yourself and these you can still share that wealth with, with the friends that ha- you have an emotional connection with or your future girlfriend, your parents, whatever it is, and it feels very rewarding to come in and you know, be the guy who made it or whatever it is. But just know that as long as you did your best to share that information with your loved ones, and even if they didn't follow it, it's not because they don't trust you. It's because there's something inside of them that that is lacking, whether it's confidence, the self deprecating thoughts or self esteem or anything like that. And so I did feel guilty for a little while. And ultimately, I was able to overcome that. But just know that if you're making the right decisions at the end of the day, others will eventually follow you. And now a lot of my friends are now following my decision making saying, you know, I should have bought Bitcoin back then or Dogecoin or whatever it is. But I say just be glad that you're here now and that you, you've you overcome whatever that demon is that you're fighting internally to, to finally open your eyes to an alternative way of living that isn't induced by wage slavery of working that nine to five or in Vegas, the 9pm to 5am job.
0: Yeah. And it sounds like, too, you are you know, obviously you being someone who does want to keep help their friends and family and sharing the wealth and sharing the wins, it sounds like you are still to this day saying
1: get some NFTs, get invested in crypto. You're still early. You're not too late. Is that correct? Yeah, it's absolutely correct. I mean, there's definitely going to be. Some volatility each way, up and down. But I advise that if you're going to buy crypto, then you're gonna to need to hold it for at least four years. Like go into it with the long-term investment thesis. That's what I did, right? I traded all of my my shit coins in 2017. I invested it all in 2018, lost it. And then once I started buying again from 2018, all the way up until that Dogecoin trade of 20 in January or February of 2021, I did not sell a single thing the entire time. So for three years, I was only buying only buying. Wow. This is how you acquire wealth is to continually buy and sit on your hands until you feel that there's enough money sitting there that can change your life. There's so many times I wish I would have just sat on my hands. I'm probably I'm going to say this again next time that we have a recording and saying, damn it, Andrew, you know, I should have taken the advice that I get that I said on my <laughs> podcast and I shouldn't have told these things so early, but you live and you learn. Just know that when it comes to investing, you're never going to time the top and you're never going to time the bottom. So just put in as much money as you're willing to lose, which sounds, you know, cliche because everyone probably says that. Mm -hmm. But it's so true. And I learned that as I get older. And now that I build in the real world and try to be the intermediary of those crypto degens who live on the computer 20 hours a day and sleep four hours (laughs) to those those friends who are working 16 hours a a day on the strip and don't participate on the internet that much at all and become only consumers of social media and not producers of social media. I try to help both sides of that. It's very tough, but just go in with the mindset that you're doing it for yourself and that you'll grow. And that's why we have conversations like this, even if nobody's listening, or no one ever does, we got to have a great conversation that is content for both of us that we get to share and just know that it exists always on the internet. And we get to watch ourselves grow. That's a very important metric that not a lot of people pay attention to.
0: Yeah, I love all that. And I love your self awareness and your empathy is off the charts of like being able to recognize here's what it's like to be rich, here's what it's like not to be rich, here's what it's like to be the guy who's next to someone who's rich. Here's the (laughs) here's what it's like to be the rich guy who's next to someone who's not rich kind of thing. I like how you're able to like to share your experiences and talk about here's how I almost died from being involved in this culture. And here's how I was able to figure out to find the consistency to be where I am today. And so I love hearing your genuine care (laughs) and and, like your heart wanting to see other people around you win and be successful and like hearing like your gratitude and your own journey as well. But we're still in our infancy stage as brand creators and also as wealth builders. And you're going to be a part of that and i know that uh, we're coming up on time here and so and i know the show is rapid results and we kind of dove into that a little bit with like the nft space and crypto space a little bit but is there anything else like people Just to get one takeaway from this interview about if they wanted to get rapid results in NFT or in crypto or in growing a community, what's like the one takeaway you want people to have for any of those topics?
1: Use the cliche term of, of Nike, just go out and do it. It's okay to feel vulnerable. And more often than not, you will feel very vulnerable, whatever you're doing. But just know that learning in public is the new style of growth. If you suck at whatever you're doing, like, for example, if you go to episode zero of my podcast, awful, oh my god, (laughs) so many times I wanted to delete it very monotone, wrong word usage. Grammar is awful. Still at this day during this conversation, there's a few times I butchered uh, grammatical errors and sentence structure and all of these different things to it. But just know that you're going to continually grow. But when you're learning in public those people who are watching are growing with you and they're learning mm-hmm. with you as well. And those people who grow with you, they get to feel a sort of like acceptance and ownership over you saying, you know, I was one of Jake's first podcast guests, or I one of his first fans, or I started watching him at episode 20, or I was a guest on his show during episode 30. Or, you know, I remember, I remember Jake saying this terrible moment on a podcast that he was a guest on and all of the backlash that he faced, and I was there with him supporting him. And so the people who grow with you, they take ownership over that and they want to see you win as well well. And that's often overlooked component to this modern age of branding and, and marketing is that with Instagram and some of these other social media platforms, as you mentioned before, they're not posting the 20 hours a day where they're sulking in their own sadness or despair because they didn't get 400 likes and they only got 200 likes on this picture or <laughs> The simple things that bring people down, but your community's there and really tap into. It. And it takes time. One of my podcast guests, who's a branding expert, brought this point to me. He said the difference between sales marketing and brand marketing is that sales were selling you a product and you know that immediately. Whereas brand branding and marketing, if you're branding yourself, it's not very obvious that you are trying to exude your brand. You're just being authentic and you're being yourself. And that takes years and years for you to be comfortable in your own skin and this image and this ideal that you want to portray to not only yourself and your family, but your community. That takes time. And... There's no product. There's no dollars involved. That's just you putting out content and engaging with those people who want to learn from you. So at the end of the day, it comes with be okay with feeling vulnerable because you will many, many times, and it never goes away. But the the faster that you can accept that there are many weaknesses in your game, and as long as you offer more solutions than you do problems, you'll be at the top in no time. Love that. Love that. Yes, got me pumped up. Woo!
0: Cool. <laughs> well, Jake, this has been beyond awesome. I'm like, and I love how you said, too, we can just go into so many topics and talk for several more hours. So I'll probably definitely have to have you back on in the future and keep diving more into that. But in the meantime, if uh, anyone else is listening in, they want to get a hold of you. What's the best way to contact you?
1: Easiest way, you could just look me up on Google, Jake Gallen, J A K E G A L L E N. I'm most active on Twitter and YouTube and my podcast. So the Jake Gallen podcast, you could type that into any platform. Apple Podcast, Spotify, whatever. The video component of the podcast is on YouTube. And I also have some other content on there as well that you'll be seeing growing. So if you want to learn more about crypto, hit me up on Twitter. If you want to follow me on my personal and podcast and entrepreneurial journey, that's more allocated towards Instagram. But hit me up. Uh, I will always respond. Sometimes the DMs and stuff get a little overloaded, but I will respond. It will not leave you on unread, I promise. Okay,
0: all right. <laughs> Uh, Well, Awesome. Well, Jake, thank you again for coming by. And uh, yeah, if you're listening, definitely reach out to him. Amazing person and uh, happy to help out. And uh, thank you all for tuning in today. We'll see you next week. Cheers. See you guys. That concludes another episode of Rapid Results. Remember to leave a review about something you learned so others can share the knowledge. Keep being unstoppable in your pursuit of the lifestyle freedom you desire. And we'll see you next week.